It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. We welcome you into the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We're glad you're a part of it. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, joins me tonight as usual. Dad, welcome to the program. Jacob, glad to be with you as always on Thursday night for uh, the Virtual Bible Study. Uh, look forward to a good discussion. we got kind of a smorgasbord tonight. We do have a smorgasbord, and we have a new uh, Internet connection. Uh, Dan is in the booth tonight uh, helping out uh, with the video, and he has configured our new Internet service provider. And so if you uh, notice any difference in the uh, delivery of the program tonight, we'd like to let know from you. If there are any problems especially, we'd like to hear from you on that. The number to call to be a part of the program tonight is 877-381-4567. The email address to use is questions at collegeview.com. And you said it. We have a variety of questions tonight. We want to take listeners' questions that have been submitted uh, to questions at collegeview.com from time to time. And uh, as you listen to the virtual Bible study, if you do not listen to it live, maybe you have questions about some things that you've heard, or maybe you just have questions in general, uh, you can contact us anytime at questions at collegeview.com. Dot com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll talk about those questions that have been submitted tonight. We won't get to all of them, but we have several to t- discuss. And if you want to uh, submit your question tonight, it is an open forum tonight, uh, so to speak. Any question will go. So maybe you have a question about something you've read in the Bible, something that someone's talked to you or asked you about. Forward that on to us tonight. We can con- include it in the program tonight, as long as it's not too difficult. Uh, well, uh, we probably got a full plate tonight. We, but we might be able to work in something extra. In fact, I didn't. I wasn't able to include all of the questions that we've been receiving for the last few weeks in the in the stack of stuff that we're doing tonight. So we've got some more that we are not even going to get to. We've been we getting can shoehorn one in, though, man. Yeah, maybe we shoehorn one in. But we've we've been getting more and more uh, inquiries from listeners, suggestions about things that we might cover on the virtual Bible study, and so we're trying to work those in. And that's what we're doing tonight. That's the purpose of our program tonight. So we we would love to have your input, your response to some of these things. We put this out earlier. Uh, We picked seven questions from various listeners that they had sent in over some time. And I put those out to our update list earlier today. Uh, And we're getting some response, Jacob, and we're anxious for more response from those of you who are participating in the chat room. Or you may send us an email or give us a phone call on any of the questions that we suggested we'd be talking about tonight. We're going to have to hurry to get through them all, but I do think they're uh, good questions. All right, the first one comes from Dave in Lima, Ohio. He says, I have a neighbor who is very involved in the Church of Christ. They are, however, an extremely unfriendly neighbor. They don't wave very much and tend to be extremely unsocial. After numerous attempts to be nice to them, there's absolutely no hope. They carry themselves with uh, with this holier-than-thou air about them that I have have seen in other Church of Christ people before, and it drives me nuts. After talking to another friend of mine, they told me that because they are Church of Christ, they probably view me as a hellbound sinner because I am not Church of Christ. They seem to be a Christian person but ignore Scripture about loving others. So my two questions. Number one, is it true that Church of Christ believes that you are not? if you're not Church of Christ, you are not going to heaven? And number two, why is my neighbor so unfriendly when outreach is a major part of the Bible? Don't you want to be nice to people to show them Jesus? Okay, good questions from Dave. And Dave, I'm sorry that your neighbor is unfriendly. There is absolutely no call for that. Yeah, let's let's deal with that first. Let's deal with the idea that people would be unfriendly. No matter matter what the doctrinal differences between people might be, there's no excuse for someone to be unfriendly in the sense that, that Dave's neighbor is being unfriendly. And so I, I would say that that is a huge problem, obviously. The, the Scripture tells us that we are, uh, for instance, very familiar statement of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 14, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick that giveth light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So 
the na- Dave's neighbor is not doing that. And uh, that's that's a shame. There's no excuse for it. There's no justification. We would not defend him in that kind of conduct whatsoever. In fact, in Titus chapter 2 and verse 10, there's an expression there that we were recently studying in a Bible class here at College View that says we ought to be living in such a fashion to adorn the Word. Well, that's interesting. I was going to uh, two verses earlier than that in Titus chapter 2, yeah. verse 8, uh, talking about speech in particular, but the idea is that we should live our lives in such a way that others can't have an issue with us. In verse 8 of chapter 2 of Titus, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing, to say of you. And so uh, we don't want to do anything that would cause others to have something that where they could say something evil about us. Uh, and certainly being unfriendly and, uh, and rude to your neighbors is certainly something that uh, would need to change. And so, uh, again, we would not uh, want to give any justification for someone being rude. Exactly right, and so uh, we can we can deal with that for that part of the question that Dave asked by saying that's not right, and and uh, that neighbor's got some issues that need to be corrected. To Anthony in the in the chat room says, if this is true, this Christian family has some changing to do, and Tigerval says, uh, well, that's just sad. Likely not much evangelism or light of the world going on there, okay. and I, I would agree. Now Dave has gone to uh, conclude that perhaps. It's because those who are in the Church of Christ might believe that they're the only ones going to heaven. What about that question? That's one that we hear often. My answer to that would be that everyone draws a line somewhere. And unless you're one of the Unitarian Universalists that that thinks everybody is okay, and I think they're relatively few in number, everyone draws a line somewhere. We talked with uh, the extremely... uh, doctrinally loose Presbyterian preacher a few weeks ago, he drew a line somewhere. Yeah, He, he says he knows more than Jesus about uh, certain things, but even he drew a line somewhere and says you, you can't go across that line. Yeah. So since everybody's going to draw a line someplace, the really only workable place to draw that line is where the Bible draws the line. Exactly. And so what and, we're and saying Jesus is... tells us where the line is. Yeah. So and, we're and, saying that the only ones who are going to go to heaven are the ones who do, who do what the New Testament says you have to do in order to be saved Matthew and go to heaven. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who saith unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, the only ones that are going to be in heaven are those who are doing Jesus' will. Yeah. Let me read some emails. We've got some real good responses on this, Jacob. Eric says, the better way to ask this question is, what does the Bible teach about who will be saved? There is no Church of Christ position or belief aside from what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that Christ is the Savior of his body, the church, Ephesians 5.23. We also find that there is only one body, Ephesians 4.4. So in order to be saved, we must be a part of that one true church. And I think that's a great way to put it. We have to be members of the one true church that you read about in the pages of the New Testament. Now, I can only speak for the church of which we're a part, Jacob. We're trying to be such a church. We're trying to... To conduct our work and our worship, we're trying to be organized in such a fashion as to follow the pattern set forth in the New Testament. Uh, and and therefore on that on, on that basis, we're trying to be a church like you read about in the New Testament, and therefore have the hope of going to heaven in eternity. Well, the church is important, as uh, Eric mentioned there in Ephesians chapter five. Christ died for it in, in Acts chapter two, verse forty-seven. Those who are saved are added to it. Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Those who are saved are in the church. Jesus died to purchase it with his blood. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 28, again, it talks about Christ purchasing the church. And, so, and if, uh, if Christ's blood is important at all, then the church is important. In Acts chapter 2, verse 28, uh, it talks about uh, the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So those who are in the church are those who are saved. And you're not, if you're not in the church then you've not been purchased with god's uh and christ's blood we're not the eternal judge of such matters god is but we can look to to the standard by which he will judge us and therefore it's possible to make some determinations for instance as you were saying earlier jacob everybody draws a line somewhere uh, dave in lima ohio would you draw a line and say that those who are members of the church of satan will not be going to heaven right well, yeah. How will you know that? Well, by looking to the Bible, comparing what they believe and teach and practice to what the Bible says. That's an obvious one. But you use that same approach to all religious groups. What about, and, and you can eliminate some and say, that's not what I'm reading about in my Bible, therefore that's not the church I want to be a part of. What about the, the Mormons, those in the Church of Mormon? They they would believe, even believe in Christ. But they, I think Dave probably would say, well, that, no, that's not acceptable. 
What about uh, what about the, the the cults? You know, like David Koresh, right? Well, somebody's gonna you're gonna draw a line somewhere. The only place, as you said, to draw the line is where the Bible does. Let me read what Aaron from Texas said about this. He said, back in February, you dealt with this question. Do you think your group is the only one going to heaven? So because I'm sometimes lazy, I'd answer this question by referring the listener to the February VBS program on that question. Or if I had to write something, I'd have to explain what I believe the term Church of Christ, what it means. It means that all all the saved people throughout the world whose congregations might or might not wear that particular name. Incidentally, there are other denominations who use the term Church of Christ to, re- to refer to the universal body of the saved as well. My copy of the Methodist Discipline uses that term in exactly that way, for example. So I'm not just playing word games when I say the Church of Christ is nothing more than the group of all the saved. So asking if the Church of Christ is the only group going to heaven is like asking whether saved people are the only ones going to heaven. It's redundant. But technically, I am even more pessimistic that since I believe that all people who die before becoming accountable are going to heaven, even though they aren't members of the Church of Christ because they're not guilty of any sin, so I have to admit that there are some people not in the church who will be in heaven. You get his point? Mm-hmm. In other words, some people who were never members of the Church of Christ, and that uh, using that expression in the true biblical sense to include all those who who through faith and obedience became members of that saved body. Right. There are some who died before they had any accountability to God. They'll be safe, even though they were never in that church, is what Aaron is saying. Okay. He says, I would not be declaring the whole counsel of God if that were all of my answer. I would have to go further and say that I believe that most modern-day churches do not teach and practice what the Bible teaches with regard to how one can be saved. And so I believe that members who follow the teaching of those churches are on the broad way that leads to destruction. And in fact, there may be lots of churches who have adopted the name Church of Christ who don't follow the Bible either, and their name doesn't give them a go-to-heaven free pass. I would try to wrap up my answer by saying that I imagine that the questioner and I believe something similar, that those who follow the Bible will go to heaven and those who don't will not. But if churches are teaching thousands of contradictory things about the Bible, they can't all be right. Okay. So we appreciate that. And real quickly, we need to keep moving through these questions. Johnny and Leoma says, I've always wondered that. Uh, he, he was. He says, "Is this true? Do you, in the Church of Christ, think you're the only ones going to heaven?" So, Johnny, uh, I hope you get some some uh, information from the answers here. Here's a here's a thought from Anthony. He says, "Using a little wordplay, this question can be answered both in the affirmative and the negative. In one sense, the answer is yes. Jesus came to Earth in part to establish His Church. Matthew sixteen eighteen. We know that those who are saved are added to this Church. Acts two forty seven." And only those who are saved are going to heaven. So again, the answer is yes. Only those in the church of Christ will go to heaven. But in another sense, I believe we can answer this with a no. The question is presupposing that the church of Christ is basically a denomination, an earthly organization with a clearly defined border and structure. The questioner is asking whether a person has to be a card-carrying member of this group in order to go to heaven. So in that sense, the answer is no. Anyone who obeys the New Testament pattern as an individual and as part of a group of common believers will go to heaven, whether they call themselves Church of Christ or not. There is no earthly headquarters or governing body that decides who can put Church of Christ on their building. The real Church of Christ is the body of the saved. Okay. So I think all those answers are well said. And again, if I was just going to boil that down and give a real quick response, we would say, only those who believe and obey what the scriptures teach are going to go to heaven. Okay. And therefore, that's why we have a program like the Virtual Bible Study, because we're very committed to trying to find out what that pattern is and follow it. Okay. The number calls eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Send your emails to questions at collegeu.com or join in the chat room with other listeners tonight. Thank you uh, for that question tonight, Dave. We appreciate uh, you asking that question. You asked that we didn't get to number two on this question. Why well, yeah, is well, my neighbor so unfriendly? Well, we talked about that, though. We can't okay. we can't justify his unfriendliness. We're going to try to do so. All right. Let's quickly go to a question from Stan. I think this one will be uh, really, relatively quick. we got two answer. questions from Stan. We number have... two and number three are from Stan. All right. Number two on the list of questions tonight. What are the all things mentioned in Romans chapter 8, verse 28? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I think the all things mentioned in Act, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, are all things. What do you think about that, Dad? Well, uh, I, I think you have to modify that a little bit. If you look in Romans chapter 8, the, 
The Apostle Paul there is talking about the things that God has done to accomplish the salvation of believers. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that in the context when he says all things work together for good, he means all the things that God has done to accomplish the salvation of those who believe and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I don't think it would be fair to say that he means that all things totally work together for good. In other words... You'd have to include Satan. You'd have to include sin. You'd have to include, you know, all all, all kinds of evil things. Those things don't. Those things don't uh, work together for our good. So I, I think there's obviously some things that are excluded from all things, and therefore I think what he's talking about in the context is all of the things that God has done and is doing presently for our salvation are good, work together for good. Okay. All right. With a spiritual focus, the things that we go through in this life, the things that we deal with work together for good. They, they work towards our salvation, provided we deal with them uh, acceptably and according to God's word. And so as we're living our life and things happen, they work together for our good. Uh, I think is, is the way that I look at it as well. I agree with your explanation as well. Uh, Aaron says, I believe that all things does in fact refer to all things that happen to one. To be precise, this passage does not say that each and everything in one life, one's life has a positive effect. It, it, what it says is that when you take all things together, the sum total effect is a good one. It may be useful to point out that even things that don't seem to be good can produce some good fruit, like the chastening of God, Hebrews 12, 11, or temptations that we learn to resist, James 1, 2 through 4. But the point is that not every single thing is good, but the total effect is good, is is Aaron's answer to that question. Something happened. Your dog gets run over. Is that a good thing? Not necessarily from a physical... Maybe if I didn't like the dog. (laughs) The dog you had maybe was a good thing. But... uh, if uh, you know that's a bad thing from a physical perspective, but it works out for good if it if it affects you in a way that uh, prompts your uh, your focus on spiritual things. Yeah, um, Anthony answers. It seems to me from the context that all things is not limited by any particular factor. So my thought at this point is that it really means all things physical and spiritual. Notice that the outcome of the all things working together is also not specified. It just says that the outcome will be good. This could be physical or spiritual good. I think we always assume it's talking about physical good, right. but I don't think we should limit it right. to that. I think that's our focus. I think, I, yeah, I would agree with Anthony that 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 passage is especially emphasizing all the spiritual things that are going on are okay. for our good. Okay, and 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 not for necessarily for our good physically. Paul right. Paul certainly suffered physically for the things that happened to him, yeah. but spiritually for our good. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anything else on that one? I think I've got all the emails. Uh, we're, we're working with a little bit of a handicap tonight. We didn't get a chance to print off our our, our earlier responses, so I'm have to field them as we're going to take a break, and we'll come back to Stan's second question. And we hope to hear from you your comments on these questions we're considering tonight. The number to call is eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. The email address is questions at collegeu dot com. Or join in the chat room with other listeners. We'll take a short break and continue right after this. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. This After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the Virtual Bible Study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. I'm Arthur Haynes from Kaleoka, Tennessee, and one of my greatest highlights of the week is to listen to the Virtual Bible Study. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. The Virtual Bible Study continues. Welcome back to the program tonight. We're glad you're a part of it. We want to hear from you. Give us a call, send us an email, join in the chat room with other listeners, and if you're in the chat room tonight and not signed on with a username, you can chat without being logged on. You can chat anonymously tonight 
if you'd like to do so in the chat room. We're talking about listeners' questions on the program tonight. And we're down to number three that was submitted, and this one again by Stan. Do you know where Stan is located? Stan's in Montgomery, Alabama. All right, Stan. Uh, his question is, do the verses in Ephesians 6 indicate that if you obey your parents, you will live a long time? Just Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. An interesting passage there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, referring back to the Ten Commandments, I believe, there. Well, in there's, a, there's, a, there's a statement, Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, where Moses said effectively the same thing to the children of Israel, that if you obeyed, things would go well with you and you would live long, Proverbs 30, verse 19. It would also be Ephesians, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. How's that read? It reads, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Okay. Uh, I take that to be a proverbial kind of expression, a, a generally true rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you have a, a, a rebellious and disobedient child, there's a much higher probability that they're going to get into things that may shorten their life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the, the, the inspired words suggest there. There have been some very good and obedient children who did not necessarily live long on the earth. And as a classic example, that would be Jesus. There never has been a more perfectly obedient child than Jesus. He lived to 30 or 33 years old. He didn't live a tremendously long time on the earth. And so we understand that proverbial expressions such as that state generally true rules. It's generally true that if you're an obedient and submissive child to your parents, that's what's in your best interest and will probably make things in this physical world go better for you. I think it is a uh, proverbial statement. I think it's also a, a figurative statement indicating God's blessings. Yeah. You'll live long on this earth. Uh, you'll live long in the land which God will give you to possess. He told the Israelites, I think it's representative of God's blessings. You obey uh, your parents, and God will bless you. You will be blessed as a result of, of obeying them. Yeah. Uh, Pat in uh, Harvest, Alabama says uh, you will live longer than you would have otherwise if you had not been obedient to your parents. He's saying it's a rel- I think he means it's a relative thing. Okay. And relatively speaking, that is a true statement. Okay. Uh, Aaron says no. Uh, does, it, does it mean if you obey your parents, you will live a longer time? He says no. But taken in the same sense in which this promise was originally offered, a nation that learns submission to authority from its youth will be better off and will overall live longer. So Aaron takes that as it was initially a, a statement to, to Israel. Yeah, I don't know that it is in Ephesians chapter 6, though. And that seems to be making application Individual. to individuals okay. to me. Uh, Anthony says the ESV English Standard Version translates this phrase, live long in the land, which is a qu- quotation. He has Deuteronomy 5.33, among other Old Testament verses, in which the context is following the commandments of God. From these verses, I don't think the clear implication is that each individual will live a longer life. Also, the fact that Paul is quoting this means that he is simply trying to convey an idea, not a specific promise of individual longevity. I think that's right, and I would agree. I think Anthony's on to the to the key there that this this was a known expression among the Israelites, suggesting you'll be blessed, things will go well with you, it will be best if you do this, that kind of thing. Okay. Okay, excellent, uh, excellent uh, explanation there. All right, so I think that's got that second question from Stan. Stan, we appreciate your questions on the virtual Bible study. All right, we're ready for number four. I think we're ready for question number four. All right, and we only had six, so uh, we're going to have time to take yours, perhaps. So send in a question if you've got one uh, as we go along. The next question is uh, one that probably many people have uh, wondered about. Uh, this comes from Sharon in South Carolina. Sharon says, in our Bible study Wednesday night, the subject came up about Baptist, Methodist, Catholic churches. I don't know, uh, I didn't know that a portion of the money paid to the hospitals makes its way to the denominations, or in the case of the Catholic Church, makes its way to the diocese and all the way back to Rome. My question is, is it a sin for us to seek medical treatment from these hospitals? Are we supporting denominations when we do so? I think it's a good question, and it certainly question. deserves consideration. And I have known conscientious brethren in times past who who did not feel that they could be a patient at a at a hospital that was operated by some religious denomination. Okay. Uh, 
if that's your conscience, first of all, I would argue if that's your conscience, you've got to honor your conscience Romans for sure. Romans chapter 14, verse 23, whatever yeah. is not of faith is of sin. But having sin. said that, I would, I, I would make the point that I believe there's a difference between buying a service from some, some organization versus making a free will contribution to an organization. You know, we, we, we buy services from people and they take the money that we give them and do stuff with it that we wouldn't want them to do. I had that as well. I, I, the money you pay your plumber may be used to support Al's Bar and Grill. Yeah. You know, he, he, he leaves your house and goes down to the bar. And so your money, in effect, is supporting the establishment of the bar. Is it wrong to, to hire the plumber? No, it's not. Yeah. You're not responsible for that. Uh, you know, uh some 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 oil companies, for instance, are owned by foreign entities that are involved in stuff. For instance, isn't it the Sitco mm-hmm. oil company that's uh, owned and operated by Hugo Chavez in Venezuela? Mm-hmm. Well, he's he's doing a lot of stuff with that money that that I wouldn't approve of. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think it'd be morally wrong for me to buy gasoline at a Sitco station. Now, I usually don't for, because I don't like what Hugo Chavez is doing. But if I'm in a pinch, I'm just trying to make a political statement when I don't buy gas from, from a Sitco station. But if, if I'm in a pinch and I buy gas at a, at a Sitco station, I don't think I'm sinning. And, and so my point is there's a difference in buying a service from someone versus making a free will contribution. I think that that would even maybe maybe be proved by the statement that Jesus made in Matthew 22 verse 21 when he when he said concerning paying tribute to caesar right. uh he said render therefore to caesar the things that are caesar's and, the, and to god the things that are god's in other words when there's a when there's a proper and legitimate transfer of money for for an authorized or reasonable purpose then we're not responsible for what happens to that money once it gets into the hands of those who are using it. Certainly, and that money was being used for all kinds of ungodly things. So uh, that that'd be my that'd be my argument. If I'm buying a service at a fair price, then that's different than making a contribution. Now, I would not make a contribution to one of those religious denominations that I disagree with different. doctrinally. It's different than d- donating to a fundraiser. You know, yeah. I wouldn't stop in at a fundraiser and uh, and support them. But uh, the, the hospitals are different. In fact, I'm not sure, are all the so-called church hospitals still associated with the churches? I think I don't they know. I, I don't know whether, like, Baptist, hospital. Baptist hospitals or Methodist hospitals that you see around in various yeah. cities here in Middle Tennessee. We've got a big Baptist hospital in Nashville. Whether or not those hospital operations actually provide funds to the, the Baptist denomination, I don't know. But again, I don't think I'm responsible to have to ferret that out. Uh, the fact of the matter is, I'm not supporting them. I'm buying a service from them. You could do it. We could look at it this way. What about uh, the guy who owns a bar, and he also has a plumbing business? He he has a truck that runs with. Some, he has a plumber that works. You know, it's, he's got this enterprise going. His bar is not very profitable, but he makes a profit on his plumbing business. Can you hire the plumber to come and fix your pipe, knowing that that money will go and help? Prop up the bar. Could you do that? Well, I think, uh, and I'm not saying you that not you want to. I'm not saying that you might not factor that into your decision making. You might choose to get a different plumber if you if you were pretty sure of the of, of the scenario you just suggested. Right. You might decide not. You, to. You might decide not to. But what I'm maybe, saying maybe is you morally, know. you couldn't say morally it's it's a sin. Now you uh, now contrast that with actually making a free will contribution to some religious organization that teaches a doctrine that we think is in error that would i don't think you could do that based on passages like ephesians 5 verse 11 have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather reprove them if i make a free will gift or contribution to a group that's doing something that i believe is is wrong then i am in a partnership with them a working agreement i'm in fellowship with them and that verse says not to be in fellowship if i buy a service from someone that does not constitute a fellowship or cooperative arrangement with them we want to take some comments here in the chat room Uh, kevin uh, in uh, hot springs arkansas says is it my money any longer after using it for the service provided okay interesting point anthony says um now there is another question in the chat room can I then attend a concert held at a denominational church? Could you pay? You know, maybe you want to go to the concert 
It's at the denominational church. Could you pay the money to go watch that concert at the, at the denominational church? Uh, well, I think we're talking about uh, matters of degree here. That seems pretty closely related to that religious organization, and and almost certainly, if that if that concert is for the purposes of fundraising for that con- for that religious organization. I'd say you're much closer to doing something there that that might constitute a fellowship or a contribution or a support uh, kind of an arrangement. I don't know. I'd be glad to hear Here's Anthony's uh, response to that. He says, is it a fundraiser? And then uh, he also says, what kind of example or message are you sending by going to a denominational event, et cetera? Are you you supporting the fact that they may be engaged in something that's not scriptural there? Yeah, yeah. Um, Who is this? I got an email here. This is Aaron. Aaron says... No, in other words, it's not wrong to go to those hospitals. No, no more so than purchasing any other service from providers that are associated with religious error in some sense. I would cite 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 here. The meat sold in the marketplace, sold in fact by the temples where it had been offered, was not tainted by its source. But if we purchase such goods or services, we must do so in a way that does not give the impression that we approve of the religious teaching of the providers. In the same way that those who ate the meat off to idols were not to do so while sitting in the temple apparently participating and that may go to the question about going to that concert uh at that at at the facility of that religious denomination that we disagree with uh so i think aaron's yeah, good quick good answer uh, there aaron uh, might apply and then uh, anthony says i do not think so in other words not wrong to go to a hospital this principle can be applied to many things for example the local starbucks may be owned by a catholic so do you not patronize that starbucks and that money is. I mean, if he's a good Catholic, that money is going straight back to Rome. Okay. Ten percent of it. Okay. He says, maybe you choose not to, and that's certainly within your rights, but there's no way to know every single background fact about all the businesses or other entities with whom we may conduct business. If you are aware of a fact and it bothers your conscience, then don't patronize that business. But there's no grounds on which you can bind that personal decision on others. A pertinent passage on this might be Romans 14 about conscience. Okay. Good, good answer again. Good, good, okay. All right. So, again, to summarize in answer to Sharon's question, uh, I would say, you know, it certainly has to be a personal decision. Follow your conscience. If it bothers your conscience, you can't do it. But I think, biblically, I would argue a distinction between voluntary or free will contribution or or support versus uh, a contribution. I'm not going to make a contribution to those denominations but I very well might buy a service from them. Okay. All right. Um, we need to go to a break and get uh, this week's bullet point out of the way. 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. Come back on the other side. We'll continue the discussion right after this. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Many people still have difficulty understanding the connection between faith and works in the Bible. There are lots of folks who would have us to believe that simple faith is the only condition for salvation from sins. They point us to numerous Bible verses that emphasize the need for believing in Jesus as God's Son. No one can deny that this is clearly a prerequisite to salvation. But what about works of obedience? What about confession, repentance, and baptism? How do these commands fit into the scheme of redemption? Are they necessary or not? The answer is simple. It takes both. Both faith and works of obedience are needed in order to please God. There are lots of ways we could prove this, but let's just look at two New Testament verses that refer to one Old Testament event. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 31 says, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. So this verse says that Rahab the harlot is commended for her faith, and it says that her faith saved her from the destruction of Jericho. But just a few pages over in your Bible, you read of her again, this time in James 2, verse 25, where it says, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? Note that her works are mentioned, and it says that these were the basis of her justification. Which was it, faith or works? The answer is easy. It was both. In fact, in Rahab's case, it's foolish to try to separate the two. In the same way, we must believe that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, and upon that faith, we must obey the commands found in the Scriptures. No need to try and separate the two. They belong together. God made them that way. That's this week's bullet point. 
Think about it. Hello, I'm Nick Law from Jennings, Florida. I love to listen to the virtual Bible study and hear God's Word taught every Thursday night. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians 3, 17. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the program tonight. We're glad you're a part of it. We want to hear from you. 877-381-4567. Email us your questions at questions at collegeview.com. All right. We, what we're doing tonight, uh, a, a little bit different program, but we've done this in the past. We're dealing with questions that have come in over the last several weeks from various listeners to the program. We kind of keep those uh, in a stack, and, and periodically we have one of these kind of programs where we just grab some of those and start trying to answer random questions. So there's no there's no connecting theme here to all these questions we're just dealing with things that listeners have said and so uh that is a reminder to you to send your questions in at any time and speaking of the stack of questions my stack is deficient tonight you, you don't have number five that. you didn't give me that question no right. i've only got six questions in my okay stack. all right well let, number five dan put if you put that one up on the screen uh comes from chris and i'm not sure where chris is from but chris asked the question as a Christian, what's required to obtain forgiveness of sin? Must you say a prayer asking for forgiveness, or would an acknowledgement with oneself, an attitude, intention of repentance be enough? He goes on to say, weird, weird question I know. The reason I ask is I have a hard time focusing my thoughts. I will start a prayer, and then my mind runs in a thousand different directions, and I feel as though maybe my prayer was not heard because I was not able to focus on the fact I am talking to God and had my mind wandering. I just do not want to risk having a sin hanging out there I have not dealt with in the proper manner. Okay, so he's talking about a Christian who sins, and how would a Christian go about obtaining forgiveness for the sin? Well, the very best text, and my guess is that Chris probably knows this text, is in Acts chapter 8, where we read about a man named Simon the Sorcerer, who had become a Christian, he had obeyed the gospel, he had been baptized. In Acts chapter 8 at verse 13, Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. So a little bit of background here. This Simon the sorcerer had been a fellow before Philip came to Samaria preaching the gospel. This Simon the sorcerer had had deceived the people, and he was held in high esteem in the city, and he and he used sorcery. Uh, to deceive the people and maintain his position of power over them. However, he was in, he was touched by the gospel. He saw the truth, he believed it, and he was baptized. Uh, sometime later, apparently not too long later, Peter and John came to Samaria, and by the laying on of their hands, the new Christians in that city received the Holy Ghost, verse 17 says. Verse 18 says, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity." Well, right there sets forth the pattern for what a Christian does when he sins. Now, remember, Simon had already been baptized. He didn't have to be baptized again. But what he did have to do was to repent and pray for forgiveness. Now, that's that's what we believe is necessary for a Christian today. As as Christians, those who have previously obeyed the gospel, uh, you don't have to be baptized again, but you do have to repent. Every sin requires repentance. And it's necessary to pray for forgiveness. That's what Peter told Simon to do. Now, uh, Chris asked, would it be okay to, instead of asking a prayer, asking forgiveness, could you just acknowledge within yourself and have an attitude or an intention to repent and be enough? I'd have to say no, because that's not what the text says. First John chapter 9 gives us some insight into that as well, where we read, if we confess our sins, again, this is addressed to Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So First John um, chapter 1 verse 9, I think, would answer that question as well. All right. Uh, Aaron answers that by saying, 
Simon was required to be penitent and request forgiveness. Acts 8.22. John describes it as confessing our sins. 1 John 1, verse 9. Okay. Uh, so I think that's the only answer we got on that one. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, we can't, we're not at liberty to change the pattern. We can't say, ah, well, if you have trouble praying, don't worry about the praying part. I don't think we can do that. I mean, that's that's what it says. That's what we need to do. Okay. Um, all right. Anthony has a follow-up question. I've always wondered how we know that gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity means he was completely fallen away and lost. <clears throat> well, uh, Simon seemed to understand that uh, that way when he says... He, that, he, 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 he said, pray ye to the Lord for me that none of these things come... And none of these things which he have spoken come upon me. Uh, verse 21 says, Thy heart is not right in the sight of God. So I would argue that he was in a lost, he, he, he was in a, an undone, uh, he was in an undone spiritual condition at that point, and he needed forgiveness. And so, you know, uh, to the question, uh, was he uh, completely fallen away and lost? Uh, I would I would say I wouldn't have wanted to die in the I, I, it, it, here's the description heart not right in the sight of God in the in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity do you want to die in that state and I'm going to say no I do not want to die in that state okay all right um, Anthony's posted a follow up question in the chat room that I think we'll have to save uh, for another uh, edition uh, do you want to go on to yeah Anthony asks us a question about. Uh, Oh, oh uh, Aaron in the chat room says the phrase "perish with thee." Well, wow, that's that's a good point there in Acts chapter eight, uh, verse twenty. Thy money perish with thee. So that suggests Simon was lost. Good point, I think. And bond of iniquity he says sounds a lot like how Paul described being a slave of sin. So yeah, I, I think that we could be pretty sure that Simon was in a undone lost spiritual condition at that point until he repented and prayed okay um and and anthony asked a question but i I, i'm like you he he says uh uh can you guys discuss first john 1 7 does this indicate that we are not constantly saved not saved saved not saved that that's a that's a tough tougher question that maybe deserves a little more prep and uh answer uh i i do think that we can answer chris's question by saying it is very clear that if if we want if we sin we need to repent and pray and and to suggest that you could do anything other than that and that's basically the question that Chris was asking I'd say I, we we don't have the Bible to suggest any different format or any different approach to the problem of a sin in a Christian's life. All right, uh, the next question comes from someone on YouTube who watched our video. Can I go to the prom? And he says, uh, quote, you said the Bible teaches that dancing is lasciviousness. Where? Before you claim this, you must show with Bible that dancing equals lasciviousness. It can be, depending on the situation, and I don't condone the prom, but not every time is dancing lascivious. This is evidenced by David in 2 Samuel 6, verse 14, and Miriam, Exodus 15, verse 20. They both dance as a form of worship before God. David's wife thought it was lascivious, but God did not. 2 Samuel 6, 16, and 20, uh, verses 20 through 23, seen by God uh, making her childless. So what about that? David says, we said that dancing is lascivious, but he doesn't agree that it is always lascivious. Well, and I haven't watched that short video that we put out there on can I go to the prom in some time? We were dealing specifically with the question of the prom, and we were talking about the kind of dancing that takes place at the prom. Right. I would agree with, with uh, this is Sitting Wolf 69 who sent this in. I would agree with him that I don't believe that every form of dancing is lascivious. I would use the same examples he did to prove that. But we were talking about the prom. We were talking about modern dancing. Which it seems that he agreed with. He yeah, agreed. and so, I mean, we, we, we're uh, probably arguing about things that don't deserve to be argued about here. We are in agreement that there are forms of dancing, even mentioned in the Bible, that are not lascivious. Right. But the modern dancing, the kind that young people today do, the kind that typified by the prom, is what we were talking about, and that is lasciviousness. Uh, um Eric from Fayetteville, Tennessee, says, Thayer says the word translated lasciviousness means unbridled lust and shamelessness. It's also translated lewdness and sensuality. 
The Bible does not say that all dancing meets this definition, but clearly many modern dances do, and I agree with Eric on that. Another part of Thayer's definition of lasciviousness I think really applies to modern dancing. Thayer goes on to say, wanton acts or manners as filthy words, indecent bodily movements, unchaste handling of males and females. And that seems to me to be almost identically, I mean, uh, specifically identifying what modern dance is. It is indecent bodily movements. It is unchaste handling of males and females. Modern dancing, that's what we were talking about in that YouTube video. And make sure that we understand we're identifying that specific kind of dancing, the kind that's done at the prom. That's what we were talking about, and that is lasciviousness. If someone... uh, 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 our listener said he does not condone the prom. I would, if I could ask him a follow-up question, I said, "Why don't you? Why don't you condone the prom?" The reason I don't condone the prom, the, the reason why I condemn the prom, is because of lasciviousness. Right. Uh, what What would he say as the reason why he does not condone the prom? I mean, that that is the prince. That is the problem. But we did not want to leave out the impression that we think all dancing is lascivious. So that would be that we would be in error if we had said that. So right. uh, we can thank him for the making. Yeah. Us, Here's uh, another comment from Aaron. Aaron in Texas says the Bible does not say in these exact words that dancing is lasciviousness. The Bible says that lasciviousness is sin. Once we understand what lasciviousness is, then we have to ask ourselves what activities match that description. In the case of dancing, it may be that there are some kind of dancing that are not lascivious, but the kind of dancing normally practiced by couples in public settings today is generally lascivious. And most people in the world admit that it is sexually motivated. I recently taught a high school class that addressed this subject and produced a number of quotes from secular sources identifying the sexual motive in modern dance. In fact, in one article in a school paper, boys were careful to say that for some kind of dancing, they were careful to get the consent of girls before dancing with them, else they understood that they'd be committing sexual harassment. Clearly, they knew the sexual nature of what they were doing. When even the world admits that something is sexually motivated, it's foolish of Christians to say that they can do it with pure motives and no bad influence on those around them. I don't know what they may be thinking, but I know what people around them are thinking because they readily admit it. Okay. Again, I think that's I think that's the fair point. I mean, people who are honest to admit what's going on. Again, we're talking about modern dance, and again, that video was "Can I Go to the Prom?" That's what we're talking about. People who uh, who are willing to admit it, people of the world admit, yeah, they do it because it's sexually motivated. It is lasciviousness. Question from an anonymous listener in the chat room: What kind of dancing do you think they were doing in the Old Testament? Well, uh, in, in that in that message from Sitting Wolf, he mentioned uh, David, who was dancing before the Ark of the Covenant uh, uh, as it was being moved, and Miriam, who who led the women of Israel in a dance of rejoicing in Acts chapter fifteen or uh, Exodus chapter fifteen. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's that's all that that is said about them. But those do not seem to be condemned. And if they were lascivious, they would have been condemned because the Bible, through and through, condemns the sin of lascivious. We'll take one more break and go to the top of the hour after this. One more question to go, and we hope you'll stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study will continue right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hello, my name is Trent Haynes, and I'm a member of the College View Church of Christ. In a scanning of the book of Proverbs, it provides us several reasons to discipline our children. To show you don't hate them, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. Chapter 13, verse 24. To give them hope, discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. Chapter 19, verse 18. To help them for a lifetime, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old he will not turn from it. Chapter 22, verse 6. To chase away foolishness. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Chapter 22, verse 15. To save his soul, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with a rod, he will not die. Punish him with a rod and save his soul from death. Chapter 23, verse 13 through 14. For your own comfort, discipline your child, and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. Chapter 29, verse 17. Parents need to read and understand these passages. So too should our children. 
Hi, my name is Zach Coleman, and when I'm listening to the virtual Bible study, I love to hear comments from other listeners. So please join in tonight's discussion by sending an email or by making a phone call. The address is questions at collegeview.com, and the phone number is toll-free, 877-381-4567. Missed a recent virtual Bible study program? Listen to any of our past programs from the archive section of our website. Now, back to the virtual Bible study. Welcome back it's to the program for this week's tonight. edition of the uh, virtual Bible study. It is. It's, it's time all right. We're almost out of time. Uh, we're welcome back to the program tonight, and uh, we want to thank Dan for uh, manning the controls for us tonight, doing a good job. And uh, we can't. And, do I, and we're him. assuming that everything uh, everything is going good uh, on the audio and the video stream. We haven't heard otherwise, so you might give us a little feedback on that in the chat room, or send us an email how you're hearing it. Uh, by the way, Jacob, there was one. Uh, let's see here. There was one question here, uh, there was one comment that I wanted to get on that dancing question from Anthony. He says, the Bible doesn't directly identify dancing as lasciviousness, but we can use our intellect to discern the meaning of lasciviousness and then to realize that most, not all, forms of contemporary dancing involve acts of lasciviousness. That's all we need to do. That's all we need to do to then connect the dots that most forms of contemporary dancing are therefore sin. Okay. All right. Uh, Nick in Florida says all the video and sound is good. Thanks, Nick. Okay. The picture may not be too good, but uh, at least the, the, you're getting the signal. Uh, we're going to take the last question, and the last question comes from David. I uh, don't know where David is. Do you know where David is? I do not. Okay. David says, I cannot find a consistent interpretation of Matthew 24, even among brethren. How about a session discussing the difficult verses in Matthew 24? We won't give it a full session just yet. We'll give it some time tonight. He's, he goes on, When our study group came to Matthew 24, I was surprised to find uh, such differing opinions on his interpretation. When I researched further, I was alarmed to find that respected brethren in the Church of Christ have also have widely, uh, widely varying interpretations. Some believe that the entire chapter is about the destruction of Jerusalem. Some believe that everything before verse 36 is about the destruction of Jerusalem, and the remainder is about the second coming of Christ. Others think it turns on verse 29. And some believe that Jesus switched back and forth between the subjects. I cannot believe that Jesus was confused about what subject he was talking about, nor can I believe that he was intentionally trying to confuse his apostles. Since so much religious error has come from this chapter, I believe it deserves a thorough study. I expect that it would stir up a lot of discussion, would probably be more than can be covered in a single session. We should cover uh, uh, Matthew maybe we, need, maybe we need to do a whole program on end time kind of things. But there, there, there are a lot of, as he mentions, false doctrine yeah. associated with this chapter. But, uh, and again, there's nothing that we can do to resolve the varying opinions that people have on Matthew chapter 24. We can't, we, we, we're not in a position to say, okay, now here's the definitive answer on Matthew 24, and everybody needs to line up with what we're saying about this. That's a text that obviously has been... Uh, batted back and forth and debated for centuries and and so we're not going to come down with the definitive answer on it there are as as david suggested two basic understandings of the text uh one is that the whole chapter of matthew 24 deals with the destruction of jerusalem the chapter starts out in matthew 24 verse 1 jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple and Jesus said to them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the tearing down the temple. We know that that, that prophecy came to pass. Not that much later. In, the, in 70 A.D., the Roman armies besieged Jerusalem and, and, and defeated it and destroyed the temple. Just as Jesus said. Actually, historically, there's kind of an interesting footnote there. The Roman soldiers were so intent upon gathering up all the loot or the valuable things that were that that might have been at the temple site, they actually turned the stones over. One turned each of the stones over, thinking they might find a little fragment of gold or something else, a precious metal that could be recovered. So Jesus' prophecy there came true in specific detail. Now there's no doubt, and and by the way, a lot of the false doctrines that are taught in Matthew 24 are based upon the verses that immediately follow. Uh, for instance, it goes on to say uh, uh, there will be, uh, for instance, in 
verse 6, ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Some people look at that and say, well, we get a lot of earthquakes now. You know, and there's certainly a lot of wars going on. This must be talking about now. And they, and a lot of false doctrine is taught along that line. We know that that's not true because very plainly at verse 35, or verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, Verily I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So Jesus, everything, without a doubt, everything that, that he mentioned up through verse 35, was going to happen within the lifetime of the people that he was speaking to in that generation. Right. And so all those earthquakes and wars and pestilences and famines and all those kind of things, those are not signs of the end of time. Those were signs that would lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay. Now, the the, 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 the difference that some brethren have is some brethren take it that at verse 36, Jesus makes a break because the, the disciples had asked not only... What shall be the sign of, uh, uh, tell us when these things shall be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming in the end of the world? Some brethren think, and I think there's a good argument that can be made, that at the beginning in verse 36, Jesus answers the second part of the question, what will be the sign of thy coming in the end of the earth? Meaning that he now reverts and begins to talk about end time things. He was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem up to that point. Then he begins to talk about the end of time and his final coming. I think there's an argument that can be made for that. Uh, I, I kind of waffle on that. I can certainly see that, and I have usually taken that position. This, the strong argument that can be made against it is that in a parallel passage in Luke chapter 21, mm-hmm. Luke's parallel of this almost certainly talks through and through about the destruction of Jerusalem exclusively. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that Matthew couldn't have covered it from a different aspect. Luke, I think, almost certainly is all t- in, in Luke chapter twenty-one is almost exclusively talking about is clearly exclusively talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Matthew may be too, or Matthew might have taken a uh, covered that answer uh, in a, in a different way because that happens in the gospel accounts and they're not contradictory; they are supplemental to one another. And so, there's nothing here that uh, would not uh, what you're saying. There's nothing in Matthew chapter twenty-four that would necessarily. Uh, be in error if you applied it all to the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what you're saying. Now, it does not contrast with what other passages teach about the end of the world in which the world will be destroyed. Right. And there are some who are in error on that. That's right. I mean, passages like 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, beginning at verse 9, very clearly describe the the final destruction of the universe uh, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning... Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So, I mean, the, the scriptures definitely teach that there is an end of time coming and a destruction of the earth and the entire physical universe. Uh, and whether or not Matthew 24 goes to that at the end or not doesn't change the truth on that fact. Right. Okay. All right. We're out of time. Uh, It's been a good discussion tonight. Uh, We've knocked out seven questions uh, from our listeners, and so it was a good good discussion. We've we've still got several questions in our stack, and we're willing to add your question to the stack of of questions that we'll deal with at some point on the virtual Bible study. It might be that someone would suggest a question that would constitute enough for a whole program. Or we may take your question and add in one of these kind of smorgasbord programs. And we may get back uh, to uh, David's question uh, in a previous in a, in a subsequent program. So uh, we'll we'll can keep keep that on as well. All right. Well, Dad. Uh, again, we want to ask our listeners to send questions in anytime you have a question. Maybe you disagree with something you hear on a program as you listen to it in our archives. As there are many who are subscribed to our podcast and downloading our programs in the archive version. We want to hear from you. If uh, you have any questions or comments, thanks to Dan uh, for running our video tonight. And, Dad, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jacob. Enjoyed it. Thank you for being a part of the program. And we hope you'll make plans to be back here next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it.
Thanks for listening to the virtual Bible study brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.